Let's turn our reverent attention now to the Holy Scriptures. In the 10th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, reading beginning in verse 17 through the 24th verse, Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 24. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned, unto, he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. <coughs> On this occasion in Luke chapter 10, the 70 have returned from their preaching, their ministry expedition. Now in the first verse of this chapter, you read where the Lord commissions the 70. And this is the third, or this is the second of three commissions that Jesus gave to his disciples in which he dispatches them to go out and exercise their preaching ministry. Now, you know, I'm sure that Jesus preached his own everlasting gospel in Galilee and even in parts of Judea at first. But as he gets nearer and nearer to the cross, Jesus begins to train his disciples to take up the baton of preaching ministry. And first he sent 10 that you can read about in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 9, also, uh, or the 12. He sent the 12, I should have said. He sent the 12, as you can read about in Luke chapter 9, and also Matthew chapter 10. Jesus sent the 12 with this commission. You remember, go not into the way of the Gentiles, nor into any of the cities of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's when he told them not to meditate beforehand, what they would say and so forth. So he dispatches them. He delega he's delegating authority, ministry authority, to his disciples. And he's giving them some on-the-job training, which is a good idea if you're going to be a preacher. <laughs> you need some training. You need some uh, on-the-job training under the apprentice model under the oversight of a wiser, more experienced 
teacher. And of course, who is wiser and more experienced than Jesus? So these disciples are dispatched to go preach. The 10 or the 12, why do I keep saying 10? Anyway, the 12 in uh, Matthew 10, Luke chapter 9. And here's the second of these three commissions, the 70. So first he sent out 12, now he sends out 70, and he sends them, notice, in 35 pairs, in groups of two, you can read in the first part of this chapter. He sent them out by two and two, which is a wonderful blessing. Teamwork, my friends, is a mercy from God. It's a blessing not to be a lone ranger in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no single individual who can do everything necessary in the cause of Christ. That's true denominationally, and that's true at a local church level. There's no single individual. You know, in every church I've ever pastored, there's been at least one male member who was sold out to the church besides the pastor. One male member who ate, slept, breathed, and lived the health and the well-being of the church. At least one. And I'm thankful for that. It takes that and more (laughs) for a church to function properly. And what a blessing it is for preachers to um, have teammates, to have men of like conviction, like faith, like mind. Because few callings are more designed to produce a feeling of loneliness than gospel ministry. You know, the minister, the pastor especially, knows the burdens of an entire congregation. He doesn't know them all perfectly, but he gets a pretty good sense of what's going on. He can read faces to a certain degree. He can tell when someone is usually cheery and they come in burdened. He he can tell if someone is preoccupied or growing distracted with the things of the Lord and becoming enamored with fool's gold in this world. The pastor knows the burdens of the marriage couples that are struggling in their relationship. He knows the young people that are beginning to flirt with the world and beginning to experiment, you know, walk the dangerous edge of disaster, of temptation. He sees the troubled marriages. He knows the slippery paths of youth. Pastors know those who are growing cold and distant to the things of Christ. He sees those who are sliding precariously down the slippery slope into the slough of despond. He can see it. And he often cannot speak it. He can't say it publicly. He cannot tell other people about it. And uh, it's such a blessing to have a teammate. Jesus sent them out by two and two. You know, Ecclesiastes 4.9 says two are better than one because uh, if one falls, the other can help him up. And if one is cold, the other can warm him. It's my favorite verse to Sister Lori on cold winter nights. <laughs> We live right on the North Carolina, South Carolina line, you know. She sleeps in South Carolina a lot of times on the edge of the bed. Say, honey, how can one be warm alone? (laughs) Anyway, uh, two are better than one. If two are warm, if two are, one is cold, the other can warm him. If one falls, the other can lift him up. If, uh, you know, two can carry a burden better than one. What a mercy it is that The Lord gives his ministry friends. You think of the numerous godly teams in Scripture, Moses and Aaron, Elijah and Elisha, 
Remember, Elijah was feeling very much alone, and he was ready to give up. Lord, they've killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left. And, of course, it was a day of great apostasy. They were under tremendous political pressure. But God gave Elijah, in his discouragement, a teammate, a helper, Elisha, who carried his water basically for a while until Elijah's mantle fell on Elisha and a double spirit of Elijah's God fell upon him. And Elisha took up the baton, if you please. What a mercy are these teams, godly teams, Paul and Barnabas. And then when they had a parting of the ways, then God gave Paul Silas and then later Timothy. What about the husband-wife team, Aquila and Priscilla? You know, sometimes the best friend you can have is a godly husband or wife to serve the Lord together. Now, some of you don't have that, I know, and I don't want to push my finger on a bruise, but what a blessing it is to have a godly companion who fears God, loves the cause of Christ, and when you're cold, they can warm you, and when you fall and they can help you up and you vice versa, right? It's a mutual benefit. Aquila, Priscilla, that husband-wife team that were, and they weren't preachers. Uh, they were ministers. You know, there, there is every, I believe in every member ministry in the body of Christ. The gospel ministry is given to equip the saints for their ministry according to Ephesians chapter four verses 11 and following. But uh, at the same time, what a blessing it is to have teams. So Jesus dispatches the 70. Now I said that this is the second of three commissions. The first is the 12, here's the 70. So it's more, so he's sending out more, right? 35 pairs or groups of brethren to go into the neighboring cities and villages that would be on the way of Jesus' final journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. Why is he going down to Jerusalem? He's going to die there. And before he dies, he wants his preachers to get some experience in ministry. And he dispatches them. And he tells them as they go out to prepare for hardship. Verses 3 to 16 in Luke chapter 10, he makes no pretense regarding the difficult and challenging circumstances with which his servants would meet when they go out to minister May I say, dear friends, this world is a perilous place to be a Christian. It is increasingly unpopular and dangerous to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us that it would be easy. In fact, we will meet with opposition to the message that we preach. He teaches in 1 John 3.13, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. He said, don't be surprised if you experience rejection from this secular world system. Acts 20, 29, Paul says, sometimes opposition will arise even within the church. He said, after my departure, grievous wolves shall come in, not sparing the flock, desiring to draw away disciples after them. Sometimes people have faulty motives. We can't see it on the surface. It's later proven to be true and they end up dividing the church taking away a group after them and we feel like our world is rocked and we say oh no i just why does this have to happen i'm telling you it's been happening a long time we're going to have difficulty jesus tells his disciples in 
when he, these, twi- these 70, when he sends them out, prepare for hardship. I send you forth as lambs in the midst of wolves. Does that sound like a walk in the park or a picnic? No, <laughs> that sounds like it's pretty treacherous. A little lamb is not safe among a pack of wolves. That's what it's like to be a Christian in a godless and anti-Christian world. And then he says, not only will you have opposition to your gospel, but you'll have personal hardships. I love how he tells them in the first part of Luke chapter 10, into whatsoever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the son of peace be there, that is if you say, peace be to this house, and they receive you with peace, then your peace shall rest upon it. They'll have a spiritual benefit. If not, it shall turn to you again. But he says, if you find peace in a house, if they are receptive to your ministry, in that same house remain. Now, can you imagine not being a dyed-in-the-wool, experienced primitive Baptist and first going into a stranger's house and saying, I'm here to preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. You know, you don't usually stay with neighbors, but yet you go in and, and you stay there until your ministry's done there. You know, they didn't have church buildings. They, 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 had, uh, they had house worship in the early Christian community. Jesus is training his preachers. You believe in training ministers? Absolutely. We don't believe in the traditional seminary setting, although I believe in reading and studying as much as I can. I mean, I am, I'm going to learn as much as I can from as many qualified and capable sources as I can, all the while using discernment. But at the same time, we do believe in a mentoring relationship in which a father in the ministry trains a Paul Timothy model, in which a more experienced minister trains a younger minister and gives him an opportunity to make his mistakes in a loving congregation setting where they can continue to love and encourage and at the same time he can make adjustments and you know seek to rise to the a greater level of maturity as he sees his pastor demonstrating that's the biblical model but it needs to happen if we're going to see ministers grow in the church so Jesus is training these preachers sending them out I want you to get some practice and I don't want to spend all of our time on that tonight but they will have hardship and he says you will have personal hardships but he says I want you to be content with your provisions notice he says whatsoever they set before you eat such things as are set before you even if you don't like porridge and and uh, possum casserole Eat such things as are set before you, you know. And uh, so he's telling them to be content with your provisions. I'm telling you, ministry is not in, ministers in the early days did not plan on living in a palatial palace. There's nothing wrong with that. If you live in one, I'm so happy for you. But ministers that Jesus sent out, he said, there's going to be a sacrifice if you're going to be faithful and true in my service. You have to be willing to live at a lower standard than you would if you followed your natural talents. And whatever people set before you, you be content with that. 
You know, contentment is not something you're born with. It's a learned trait. It's a spiritual discipline. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And you learn contentment by first being thankful, as we preached this afternoon, and humble, and then being grateful for the least of God's mercies. And then saying, you know, it could be worse than it is, and thank God that I have what I do. You know, I used to hear my granddaddy pray, Lord, thank you that things are as well with us as they are. Have you ever heard that? As well with me as they are. You say, well, they could be better, Brother Mike, no doubt. But, I mean, do we really deserve it? But thank you, Lord, that things are as well as they are. So Jesus is saying you're going to have hardships. You're going to be met with opposition. You're going to be met with unbelief. You're going to have personal hardships. So now go out, men, and preach the gospel of the kingdom. You preach the gospel of the kingdom. Notice he uses that expression. And when you come, he says, say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Whatsoever you enter into the city, he says, when you, whatever city you, uh, city you enter, if they receive you not, you go your way to another place, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, you're, it's an acted sermon saying, I don't want to be contaminated by the unbelief of this city as I go to the next one. It's a pretty audacious move. But he's saying... Uh, I want you to go preach. And he said, if they don't believe, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for those cities when I judge them. Now, by the way, I believe in the judgment of cities, the judgment of nations. It's, that is something different than the judgment of individuals at the grand of size, at the final judgment. God judges cities. He, he told Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, he was going to judge them. They repented and stayed the judgment for about 100 years. Later, um, Nahum repeats that uh, judgment, and sure enough, Nineveh was judged. But he, he judged that city. He judged Tyre and Sidon. He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He's judged nations. What does Psalm 9 say? The, uh, that nation shall be turned into hell. He said uh, the wicked shall be turned into hell together with Every nation that forgetteth God. Every nation. So there's a hellish judgment upon families. He judged the house of Eli, right? Is that a, a judgment with eternal consequence? Is it? Now, I thought y'all were old Baptist here. You're, I, I scared you a little bit, didn't I? Sorry. Is that a judgment with, with eternal consequence? No, a, the judgment on nations, on cities, on families, houses... Is, does not have eternal ramifications, but it does have temporal ramifications. The only judgment that has eternal ramifications is the final judgment that will happen when Jesus comes again. And because that judgment is coming, my friends, I'm glad to tell you some good news. He bore your judgment and the judgment of all of his elect on the cross so that you will not be judged at the last day. As it is appointed and men wants to die, that's, that's what your future has in store for you. You want me to give you some good news today? Death is in your future. You say, well, Brother Mike, what worse news could you bring than that? I've got worse news. And after this, the judgment. As it is appointed unto men wants to die, yes, that's bad news. And then after you die, you've got to face God in judgment. So Christ... And that little monosyllable, so, my beloved, is good news. 
The gospel is in that expression, in that word. So Christ, that means that's why Christ, because the judgment is coming, that's why Christ was once offered. To bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, before I start preaching, I better get back to my text. (laughs) Jesus has dispatched the 70, the third commission. I'll finish the point. The third one is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You know that one. The gospel commission, the great commission, in which he says, go ye into all the world. Now, it's no longer exclusive to the Jewish people, but it's international in its scope. You preach wherever the Holy Spirit leads you. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, whatever the ethnic background might be, whatever the linguistic Distinctions may be between people groups. He says, you don't make distinct. You preach as the Lord directs you in all the world and make disciples of all nations. Notice he didn't say that preaching is to make children of God. He said it's to make disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. Only God can make children of God. But my friends, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can and should be making followers of Jesus. We should find the Lord's people out here in the world and say, come follow Jesus. This is the path of peace. This is the path of blessing. Okay, let's get to our text. So the commission to the 70s in verses 1 through 16 in this chapter. Now we have the return of the 70, verse 17, and the 70 returned again. I don't know how long they were out. He had dispatched these, set, these, these uh, 35 pairs of men to go out and preach. They've gone into people's houses in Nain and Capernaum and, well, maybe not Capernaum on this occasion because he actually mentions Capernaum as a city that would be judged so completely that, um, it, would, that it would never be heard from again, be thrust down to hell. And by the way, did you know that archaeologists today still disagree with each other as to where the ancient city of Capernaum was located. That's how thoroughly this prophecy was fulfilled. Anyway, the 70 now have come back. And notice it says the 70 returned again with joy. This is a happy group of preachers. And here is their report. Lord, even the spirits, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Jesus' response is one of the most surprising responses I've ever run across in the scripture. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Now we don't know exactly what that means. Anybody that tells you they know exactly what it means is pulling your leg. Maybe a dominant person could say this is what it means and if you believe anything else, you're a heretic, but he doesn't know any more than you do. I do have my convictions of what he means. Somebody says this means the, when you preached the devil's turn tail and ran, yes, yes, I know, I agree with you. I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. In other words, even the devil got, got out of dodge when you were preaching. You know, even the devil turned tail and ran. Yes, yes, I know that you had good success, good ministry success. That could be what he's saying. Or he could be saying, I see hints of the same kind of immature pride 
that was responsible for the devil's fall. For you, you know, don't you, that in, you know, don't you, that in uh, Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, 6, the Apostle Paul says, don't ordain a novice that is a beginner. Now, were these guys beginners? Were these guys, you know, new preachers? And I love young preachers. I love young preachers. And, um, and uh, I used to be one. <laughs> um, it was a rude awakening to me when I realized that I was no longer in that category. But, um, I loved, but were these guys beginners? Yes. They'd just been sent out to preach for their first sermons. And they come back saying, you should have heard us. You should have heard us. It was wonderful. We were so blessed. The people just, I mean, everywhere we preached, healing was taking place. The devil's exorcisms were taking place. It was just revival in the, in the city. That's, that was their report. And Jesus says, I beheld, I beheld Satan as lightning. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. May I suggest for consideration that it's possible there's a bit of hyperbole in the report of their achievements. It's possible they are exaggerating their own assessment of their ministry efforts. And may I say that's not unusual among those who lack experience. I remember the first time I preached, I was so happy that I could actually say more than my own name and actually get put a sentence together in a way that was halfway coherent that uh, I was just tickled and I thought that anybody that didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking was probably, you know, needed to be born again or no. <laughs> you know I'm joking, I hope. The fact is that a uh, and I know people have different personality types, right? Some people are more type A personality, extroverted. Some people are more introverted, and it's really difficult for them to get up and speak. They have to learn to overcome that. And, you know, but I don't know that it's just a matter of personality type. Perhaps certain personality types are more inclined to this, but the very idea that our joy is tied to our pulpit performance is unworthy of the service of Christ. You see, people, there's a real tendency for people to rejoice in the wrong things. Early in my ministry, I read, a, read in a book that someone had given me by Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks was a 19th century Episcopal minister, pastored, he was rector of Trinity church in Boston, Massachusetts for many years. He was actually um, bishop of that whole diocese for a period of time. Phillips Brooks is the man that preached uh, to Her Helen Keller. You've heard that story probably, and Helen Keller stopped him in midway in his sermon and said, I, I know him, I know him, I just didn't know his name. You've heard that story? God had written it in her heart, but she, when she first heard the name of Jesus, something in the truth resonated with what was in her heart. Phillips Brooks is the man that preached to her, and she said that. He's also the uh, author of the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that we sing around the holiday season. He wrote a book called The Joy of Preaching, The Joy of Preaching. Somebody gave it to me, and I read it, and I... For many years, I thought about what a blessing it is. It's a joy to preach. 
And I have to tell you that as time has gone on, I've realized that um, preaching is not very easy. <laughs> In fact, my performance has never been quite as up to par as I thought it, should, thought it was or thought it should be. You know, when you listen to as many sermons as I listen to through the course of a week, and I probably listen to, I would say, 12 to 15 full-length sermons uh, through the course of each week, maybe more in some weeks, and uh, I've learned all of the preacher's little different personal idiosyncrasies. I have a file of outtakes where I've taken, uh, you know, funny moments that I could use if anybody, well, I won't. I won't, thre I won't threaten that from the pulpit, but I do have a file of outtakes, and, uh, you know, it is hilarious. But anyway, uh, you know, faux pas, misstatements, miscues, misquotations, and some of mine are in there because I realize that, that I've, I'm, I'm a man with feet of clay also. But the point is, the joy of preaching. Yes, I, I've experienced the joy of preaching. Have you? The joy preaching, Brother Donnie, Brother McCool, yes, br yeah, Brother Honey, yeah, the joy preaching. I've experienced the joy of preaching, but it's few and far between. Because I've never, Brother Philip, I've never preached a sermon that I felt like that every I was dotted, every T was crossed. My voice cracks, my mind is dull, I stumble over a text, I miss a point, I f do something wrong, I forget my main point, or one of the illustrations like I did this afternoon that I wanted to use. The, the joy of preaching, yes it is a joy at times, but I'd rather talk about instead of the joy of preaching, and it's a, it is a privilege, it's an honor. Whether it's a joy or not, it is an honor to speak in the name of my Lord. But I'd rather talk about the preacher's joy. Because these disciples returned from their commission and said, and they returned with joy. They're so happy. Even the devils were subject to us through your name. And sure enough, they had the ability to exercise demons, to heal the sick. They were very talented. But Jesus says, in this rejoice not. Do you know why he says rejoice not? Because that is subject to change. Success in ministry is not constant. It, it varies. It's like the tides. It's up and down. In other words, we shouldn't rejoice in our special spiritual feelings or experiences. I've had a couple of experiences in my life in which God, the Lord, was so near to me. I wouldn't even try to tell you about it because... I know it would not come across as it was to me, but I mean, I would just weep. One night I was driving home, well, I said I won't. <laughs> One night I was driving home late at night after an extended preaching trip, long hours, dark, roads were almost empty, listening to hymns and music, and tell you, I just wept. I don't know how I made it home. I don't know how I could see the road, but I mean, it was like the Lord was right there. Every lyric spoke right to my soul, such personal communion. I've had some strange dreams. I've had a few special experiences, but he says don't rejoice in your spiritual experiences. Don't rejoice in your pulpit performance. Because sure as the world that you have good liberty one Sunday, you'll struggle the next. 
Don't rejoice in your particular talents or gifts. Now these brethren here, they, all, they each have their own gifts. Wonderful gifts. Sometimes I, uh, I, I want to, I see what they do right that I am not very good at and I want to try to improve. And I try to study it and try to learn how to do better. Correct little habits that I'm picking up, you know. And I'm thankful for their gifts, but my friends, may I say, that sign gifts or other spiritual abilities like teaching, exhortation, or the gift of knowledge, or ministry, whatever your gift is, it's a blessing from God, and it's, the fact is, if you are really gifted, did you know, I've never known a man that was exceptionally gifted that had a lifetime of hard running. Do you know what I mean? I've never known somebody who was as useful his entire ministry as he was during a certain window of opportunity. You think about Charles Spurgeon, you know, the Prince of Preachers, they call him. Do you know Spurgeon's ministry was probably only really populist and effective? I mean, it was, a, it was more effective than I'll ever dream of being, but about 25 to 30 years of his ministry. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones pastored for 40 years and of course had a great influence, but you know, every preacher, he gets to the point that his mind isn't as sharp and his, uh, you know, delivery, he, his voice is more, is not as resonant and he gets to the point where he struggles more. I've never known a preacher that has stayed at the top of his game throughout his entire ministry. I've never known a baseball player that stayed at the top of his game throughout his entire career. I've never known a basketball player who was dominant for 30, 20, 30 years running. Maybe three, three to five, maybe 10 years at the max. You know, you reach a zenith and then you're on the downhill grade. That's the way all of life is. It's true for ministry too. My dad is an ordained minister. He's been ordained for 52 years. And dad has a heart to preach. He has a gift to preach. He's, I grew up under his ministry. But dad's health has broken down to the point that he's no longer able to preach on a regular basis. In fact, he's no longer able, hasn't been able for a while to attend public worship in a, you know, uh, consistently. My heart goes out to him. Because I know he still wants to and he still desires, but you know, the actual, the calls for his service are not as great as they once were. You know, you reach a point when you're not marketable, right? That's true in the secular world. You get to be 50, if you've got a job, you better stick with it, buddy. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I mean, there are a few exceptions here and there, but you know, somebody, some fellow in his close to 40 years old said, I think I'm gonna become a professional golfer. Sorry, buddy, you missed your opportunity. You missed your window of opportunity. It doesn't matter how much you learn and how good you get. You're not, nobody but the senior tour is gonna to want you now if, they, if they'll even take you. <clears throat> what I'm saying is these preachers came back and they were so excited. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in your gifts don't rejoice in your ministry successes, large crowds, the converts you've had, the occasions in which you've had a liberty, unusual liberty in the pulpit, because success has the potential to puff someone up. 
ordained not a novice, left being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So don't think it's always going to be this way. You, okay, you preached, you preached good. I'm happy for you. But instead, here's what you should rejoice in. Let's hit these quickly. The preacher's greatest joy is not his gift, his talent, his success, the size of his church, the number of baptisms he's performed, the number of couples he's married. That's not the gauge for success in ministry. It's not the location of your building. It's not the size of your building. It's none, nothing like that. The preacher's greatest joy, my friends, is in the grace of God. That is every preacher and every believer's, it should be, greatest joy. That's what verse 20 means. Rejoice not. In this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus counsels his servants to find their, their joy not in ministry success, but in the incredible reality that they themselves belong to God. It's a privilege to minister, yes, as I said, but it's a far greater privilege to have your name inscribed on the registry of eternal glory. Because that will never change. When my voice is so creaks so much that I can no longer speak in a way that's intelligible to my hearers, may I say my name will still be written in heaven. When my church struggles during a season and churches go through seasons, just like we do in nature, just like families do, sometimes it's winter time and all you can do is batten the hatches and survive. Sometimes it's spring and there's revival. Sometimes it's summer and the harvest is being gathered but my friends, may I say, whatever the season might be, there are no seasons on the record books of heaven. Your names are written in heaven. Now, what he's teaching here is a doctrine known simply as the doctrine of sovereign election. Your names are written in heaven. Did you know God has a list? Years ago, I watched a movie, some of you probably saw it, called Schindler's List. It's a movie about a German man named Arthur Schindler who had a good heart. And he saw the uh, atrocities that were happening to the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. Mr. Schindler, Schindler was a powerful man, a very reputable man, a very wealthy man, a businessman, an entrepreneur. And he began to use his resources he put up a shell company, and he began to use his resources to purchase Jewish people who were on the list to be sent to the concentration camps, to Auschwitz and the rest. And he found one and found another and said, I need this man. He's an engineer. I need this man. He's a, an optometrist. I need this lady. She is an expert seamstress. And he, he took these people, and of course it was a shell company. They really weren't producing or manufacturing anything, but yet he was rescuing, he was saving these people who were condemned to death. And hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Jewish people were saved. It's a true story. In fact, there are still descendants of these people who are living, who still gather on Arthur Schindler's birthday each year. And it was a 
a heartbreaking movie, but oh, how moving it was to see how he was driven by compassion to rescue these people condemned to death. And when it came to the end of the movie and he had been found out, Mr. Schindler looked down at his watch, you know, like a Rolex or whatever. And he said, oh, this could have bought 15 more. And then he looked at his wedding ring and he said, oh, and this could have bought 25 more. If I could have melted the gold down and sold it, I could have rescued more. They said, oh, but you've done so much. He says, oh, but I could have done more. And he wept. I'm telling you, just as Art Schindler had a list, the God of heaven had a list. Amen. A people that he intended to rescue. And when he came to pay the price for their salvation, my friends, he was able to save every last one on his list. He does not pace the floors of heaven tonight, wringing his hands, saying, I could have done more. I should have done more if I would have just sacrificed a bit more. But I'm telling you, the Lord Jesus Christ gave his own life blood, and he laid his life down for all that the Father gave him. And here's the good news of the gospel. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he's given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. Amen. My beloved election, election is, not a bad, is not a hard doctrine. It's a glorious doctrine. And I dare say the problem most people have with the doctrine of election is not understanding the doctrine. It's, it's accepting the sovereignty of God, that God has the right to do as he pleases. It's what Romans chapter 9 is teaching. You know, a lot of Christians don't even know Romans 9 is in the Bible. Romans 9 says that God says, The children being not yet born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, neither having done any good or evil. This doesn't factor into the equation. He's not considering their works or their pedigree or their, their personal behavior. He says, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works. But of him that calleth, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Somebody says, wait just a minute, brother. That's surprising to me. I want to tell you it's surprising to me too. It does shock me. It shocks me that God would love Jacob. For Jacob was a con artist par excellence. He's a heel catcher. I mean, his whole life. I mean, it, he learned over time, but he was a slow study. He was not a quick learner. Uh, he, he learned to, uh, you know, but all through his life, he's trying to pull the wool over other people's eyes and, you know, position himself for his own personal benefit. Jacob lived for old number one, for Jacob. There are many people like, how could God love that hoodweaker and deceiver named Jacob? I understand why he would judge anybody, why he would judge an Esau. I understand why he would judge a Mike Goins in eternal judgment, don't you? My friends, how would he love that con artist named Jacob? He says that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And then Paul adds this, you will say then unto me, there is unrighteousness with God. Paul says, God forbid. 
And that is the strongest emphatic negative in all the Bible. God forbid means perish the thought, don't even think it again. God forbid. For he says, God said, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Sounds like he's doing things the way he wants to. Do you know what sovereignty means? It means God is God and you're not. To say that God is sovereign is simply a way of saying that he does what he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, how he pleases, and to whom he pleases. And no man has the right to question him or say unto him, what doest thou? He's the potter, I'm the clay. My friends, nay but old man, he adds, who art thou that repliest against God? If election is not true, there's no hope for any of us. Because you and I never would have chosen God on our own. Had God not taken the initiative to choose you and to choose me, then heaven would have been empty and a thousand hells filled to capacity. He says, rejoice not that you, were, that you preached a good sermon and had some converts. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. For he goes on to say, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Now here is the only occasion in the gospel record where we're told specifically that Jesus rejoiced. Now we do know that he had joy, that emotion. John 15, 11, these things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. So he had joy. Jesus was not a morose, somber, depressive kind of individual. Jesus knew what it was to have peace and joy in his heart. But there's the only occasion in which it said he rejoiced, which means he got really happy. <laughs> you ever seen somebody rejoice? And if you learn what Jesus rejoiced about, it would surprise a lot of Christians to know what makes Jesus really, really happy. Do you know what made him happy? In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced. Now, he's just told them that your names are in heaven, written there by the finger of God in the Lamb's Book of Life. And by the way, that Book of Life, the Lamb's Book of Life, was published, is printed and published before time ever began. Okay, the, it hasn't been amended, hasn't been abridged. It's not being written. Somebody, have you ever heard somebody say another person made a decision tonight and another name was added to the Lamb's Book of Life? You're thousands of years too late. Those names are already there. You say, are you just preaching tonight, preacher, that God's, that God's decision and not mine is determinative regarding eternal destiny. That's exactly what I'm saying. And if that worries you, you think you're, you can decide better than God can? God's choices, my friends, are impeccable. He's never made a mistake. If a perfect man in a perfect environment with a perfect wife made the wrong decision, Adam in the Garden of Eden, what makes you and I think that we would do any better Imperfect people with imperfect spouses living with an imperfect heart. My beloved, Adam's free will got him into trouble. But God's free grace got us all into heaven. And this is what makes Jesus rejoice. Jesus also rejoices in the sovereignty of God and salvation. Notice how he says, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. He's happy. And he's thanking God and he's verbally expressing it. And he said, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. What? 
He's happy that things are hidden from some and shown to others. That's what it says. You've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, listen to this. Here is one of the best definitions of divine sovereignty you'll ever find in all the Bible. For even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. That's the way you wanted to do it. That's the right, that's the best way. For it seemed good in thy sight. You know what Jesus is teaching here? He's teaching God's discriminating grace. Now, that's not a popular word today. It's politically incorrect, discrimination. And I understand it's not appropriate when it comes to human relations. But I'll tell you, God has every right to discriminate between one and another. And there's a sense in which each one of us discriminate. Isn't that right? I discriminated against all of the females in the world when I chose Sister Lori. <laughs> and I'm not going to apologize to you. You missed out, ladies. <clears throat> no, I'm joking. You know I'm joking. And she discriminated against all of the menfolk when she chose me. Now, what would you think of me? You say, well, doesn't God love? God loves everybody equally and alike. And I don't want to be so in your face that it's offensive, but I'd, I want us to say it like this. God loves everybody equally and alike. What would you think if Sister Lori came up to me and said, honey, do you love me? Husbands and wives ask each other that sometimes. Do you love me? I said, of course, honey, I love all the ladies. <laughs> would that be appropriate? Would that satisfy her? Honey, I love all the females equally and alike. No, you want, she wants me to discriminate, don't you? Good deal. She wants discriminating love, right? Or what if I said, honey, I love all mankind. I love all human beings equally and alike. If God loved everybody equally and alike, is that very personal? Does that make you feel special, that he loves everybody equally and alike? Does that really make you feel special? I'm saying God is holy, and he doesn't owe any of us his grace. And the very fact he would choose a multitude as innumerable as the sands by the sea and the stars of heaven is truly remarkable and write their names in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I want to tell you, old preacher said that there wasn't an eraser on the other end of that pencil. He inscribed them with indelible ink. In fact, he engraved them into his hand. You talk about a divine tattoo. I have graven thee in the palms of my hands. It's part of me. You're, you are remembered before God and I am too. Okay. Jesus says, Father, thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, revealed them to babes. May I ask you a pointed question? How does this text and its revelation that God hides the truth from some square with the popular notion that the preaching of the gospel is the instrument of a person's new birth? Would Jesus have been happy if the preaching of the gospel is the instrument that somebody has to hear it in order to be born again? Instead of just the good news of what the Lord's done for us. You see, that's what the gospel is. It's news. Good news. I'm a newsboy. I didn't make the news. I'm just telling you what it is. I'm telling you he finished the work. He's a successful savior. But if the person that says that you've got to hear it and process it. And by the way, how could a mentally challenged person process it? 
That doesn't make any sense. How could a little baby in its mother's womb process the propositional truth of the gospel? It, the, the logical presentation, the rational pr presentation of the gospel. How could someone, my friends, that never has an opportunity to hear it? There are people, there are undiscovered people groups in this world. How does this praise service of Jesus, thank you, Father, that you've hidden it from the wise and prudent and revealed it to babes. For even so, Father, so it seemed good in thy sight, and he's happy about it. How does this square with this modern idea of decisional regeneration? You say, well, do you not believe in decisional regeneration? I believe in immediate regeneration, that God quickens his children without the use of means or media, but directly the Holy Spirit comes into the heart and awakens a person from death and sin to life in Christ, and then the gospel tells them what he's done for them. Jesus said, I rejoice in the sovereignty of God in salvation. And then he says in verses 23 and 24, the preacher's joy is not in the act of ministry, in the success of ministry, but it's in the fact that my name is in the Lamb's book of I'm a child of the King. Thank you, God, that I am one of yours and that you have done a work of grace in my heart. You've revealed it. Notice he says, Father, those that the Son reveals the Father to are the only ones who know this. Did you know if you know anything about what God's done for you today, it's because he revealed it to you. Revelation, revelation, and that's a humbling doctrine. But he says, then the blessing of understanding the gospel of grace, the preacher's joy is in knowing and hearing the truth. He said, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see, verse 23. I tell you, many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen them and to hear those things that you hear and have not heard them. I want to tell you, you're the most blessed generation in the history of the world living today. You know, Brother Mike, it's, it's hard. It's hard today because the world so opposes us. Actually, it's, it's not the most the world's ever opposed the church. It's just starting in our day. We've just been spoiled rotten by 200 plus years of religious freedom in America to where we think, oh, it's, you know, living in the Bible Belt, it's, but Christianity has largely existed throughout its storied history in, in uh, cultures of persecution and opposition. But the fact is, my friends, the bl most blessed people of all are those who hear and know the joyful sound who hear because many people have desired to know what you know and to see what you see in the fullness that we see it. There's no greater joy for the preacher in the pulpit or for the believer in the pew than to belong to God's people via electing grace, than to know the Lord in your heart via regenerating grace, his revelation in your soul, than to see and understand the truth of his grace as it's, as it's revealed in the gospel. Grace, not works, not Preaching, not ministry works or success. Grace is the preacher's greatest joy.